0: All right, we got Mike Mazer on the podcast today, niche real estate investor, here to pick his brain on uh, different parts, different sectors uh, within real estate you can invest in that you probably haven't heard of before. Great to be back, Drew. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth, but why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. So, I mean, you've really carved out a uh, a really nice career investing in all these different uh, sectors within real estate that um, I don't really know anyone else investing in most of them. uh, Where, I mean, just to kind of bring people up to speed and what you've done, where um, uh, maybe I'll go with it. or Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, The post office properties, I mean, last time I talked to you, you had bought like a couple hundred of those and we're building a big portfolio. Now you're on to uh, self storage and building up a platform that I mean potentially could be something that IPO someday. Uh, and a lot of times when we've talked, I mean, you've had all sorts of other ideas on like, Hey, what about vet clinics or dental practices rolling up these? So let's, uh, let's talk about all that today.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So by way of background, I've invested in like when I, when I think of the major food groups in real estate, it's like, Multifamily office retail and hotels are kind of considered like the most classic real estate investments. And then in terms of like niche investing, I think it's, uh, expanded into like self storage, senior living marinas, data centers, um, like products are, and, and actually most recently like life science. Yeah, research facilities I think have become really popular. Um, so it's, it's hard to find a niche where someone isn't playing in yet or where there isn't a lot of institutional competition or like in the instances of like self storage, where even though there's a lot of institutional competition, there's enough mon and pa investors out there and people you can buy from where you can still add value by being an institutional investor. Um, and so, you know, that's, what that's what we were doing when I was at American Postal and I, uh, I was heading up acquisitions there we purchased over 500 properties uh, and I was in charge of while I was there and scaling up that business. Um, and so, you know, when I think about niche investing, it's like a combination of what can you do, uh, what can you do to grow rents better than like a monpa individual? Uh, are the cash flows safe? And if they're not safe, what can you do to grow rents where you get paid for the risk that you're taking? Um, and so, like in the post office example, it was like, well, you know, the USPS is the credit behind your post office, which is pretty wonderful. Um, you know, there were a lot of MonPa investors that were worried about the post office leaving. Whereas us, like we knew that the post office had a really high renewal rate and we were, you know, we were trying to manage them. We were trying to manage rents to market and manage the post office for the future. And it was like, we had a completely different approach than someone who just like casually owned one. And so, um, you know, as, as I thought about that, like. One, one asset class that I've really liked has been veterinary clinics. There's over 22,000 of them throughout the country. Um, they are being rolled up right now by private equity. And actually that's the way that I found them. I was like, what asset classes are private equity investors that maybe aren't so interested in commercial real estate components, um, like rolling up because they see value in the business. And so I looked at like two, two years of data. And one thing that I was surprised by is that a lot of, a lot of private equity companies around the Midwest were buying veterinary clinics. And it was like, it was surprising to me. I dove into it a little bit more. And what I realized is that overwhelmingly, like it was a very recession resistant industry with year over year sales growth, like crushing inflation. So I was like, oh, okay. I understand that now. And then what I, what I realized as I was going into it more is that there's over 60 private equity companies that were aggregating up this, these practices where you have mon pot credit. And then they were expanding into like larger portfolios and either selling themselves or buying other people and aggregating up further. So in my mind, I was like, well, here's an opportunity where, uh, the entire profile the credit profile of the industry is improving. It's going from mom and to institutional, but as, as many people know, private equity usually has a lot of debt, um, behind their acquisitions. And so it's like the asset class is improving, but it's not like extremely stable right now. But I, f- I found that appealing for like an asset class to go into. So I dove into it further and what I realized was um people that were in veterinary spaces tended to stay in their buildings for a long time. They had pretty stable cash flows with very little landlord responsibility, ability to push rents like two to three percent sometimes at CPI, which as we know now is like extremely beneficial to have as it's part of your lease, and incredibly easy to manage. And so I kind of like that combination. Um, so I purchased with, uh, uh, a couple friends of mine, uh, a veterinary clinic last year, just to kind of see what it was like. And, uh, I was delighted at how simple it was to manage. Um, we were able to find like a 13 year, um, lease term that was owned by one of the, uh, uh, major aggregators around here in Chicago at a cap rate that was giving me like a double-digit cash on cash yield. So I felt great about that. Uh, It's like, it's like a core asset. And so, um, my thinking was if these things are easy to purchase, it would be really nice to aggregate these up into like a portfolio that's big enough where maybe somebody more institutional would be like, oh, it's nice that I don't have to go and cobble up all these individual properties together and I can just do it on, and I can just, you know, buy it from Mike um and so that was my plan i still really like that idea but i haven't been pursuing it that actively recently just because interest rates went up so much when you have like a a fixed um rental stream like triple net properties like vet clinics that matters a lot Uh, where where it doesn't really make sense for you to buy these things necessarily with debt until the cap rates start going up a lot in, in a space like veterinary clinics. What's been really interesting is assets like veterinary clinics or post offices haven't been moving in lockstep with interest rates. I think people look at those assets as being relatively safe or recession resistant and so like cash buyers is have continued to acquire those types of properties right now. So right now I'm like on the sidelines hoping that cap rates will ultimately end up going up and then continue to grow from there. But it's that type of thinking and like the logic tree that got me into being like, Oh, Vec clinics seem like interesting for the reasons I had mentioned before is like, that's what I consider niche real estate investing. Like that's, what's very appealing to me. Um, as I like think about ways that I would want to grow my real estate portfolio, both like professionally and like working for others as well.
0: But now to back up a second. So let's, let's drill down on the the deal you bought because yeah. I think your average person listening to this podcast that probably don't work in private equity or, yeah. um, are going to be maybe aggregating portfolios. Um, but they might buy a three unit for, seven, 800,000, let's say that's the Chicago price, at least. Yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. That's a high number, but I would guess the clinic would have been around that number, maybe less. So yeah. let's walk through that deal a little more.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, it was a property that, um, we were buying for like around a six and a half percent cap rate. Um, it had a 13 year lease term with rents growing at 2% where there was very little landlord responsibility um and so most of like the uh costs of maintaining that property fell onto the tenant as being the responsible
0: part it's a triple net lease it's
1: it's it's almost a triple net lease where like you're responsible for the roof
0: okay a roof replacement yeah or okay yeah i mean then that if for folks not familiar with that it's it's a simple setup where the, the the clinic or any tenant if they say it's triple net um They're paying their usual base rent, but then also, uh, Mike will send them, uh, usually they pay it monthly, like an estimate and you trip at the end of the year, but Mike will send, it'll pay all the bills to run the property and the tenant reimburses them. So for property taxes, insurance, uh, for everything running, you know, snow removal, uh, except for a couple items on the roof here on this one. So, um, I, I thought triple net it's, uh, like if it doesn't include the roof or like anything, then it's like, I don't know, absolute triple net or something where yeah. I thought, I think triple net still has the landlord, um, repl- with some capex things like structural, which I would consider roof to be. So, so I guess that's my, that's what most of our retail deals have at least. So uh,
1: very fair comment. I think that those definitions blur based on like who you were talking to. Um, I guess absolute triple net and triple net to me are the same thing.
0: Yeah. Well, anyways, that's two in the weeds. But so we got uh, this like fixed stream of rent uh, that's growing 2% a year. And then if the operating costs change at all, that gets thrown back to the tenant. So continue. So six and a half cap, you said? Yeah. What well, What was your interest rate on this? Our
1: interest rate was in, was like three and a half percent.
0: Okay, nice. That's a big spread. So It's yeah. a lot of cash flow uh, right is what I'm hearing and then what what was the purchase prices of the whole clinic
1: it was right around one point three million so it was a little bit bigger than your three flat but still like a no institutional
0: radar yeah and then how um the the money to buy that I mean where that was your per, like the the equity the down payment yeah
1: yeah there was a uh down payment equity that we had funded basically through like uh through friends who were interested in investing with us nice and then we had uh a loan on the property
0: where'd you get the loan
1: um we used uh we used a local uh chicago bank that i was lucky enough to have good
0: relationships with okay great so yeah then you borrow at three something percent and it uh a six and a half cap that's like what it would make uh you know another way to think of that is that would be your cash yield per year if you didn't have any debt on it so then if the property's paying out 6.5%. Mike put some down and then also uh, borrowed the rest at three. So there's a lot of excess cash being thrown out. Correct. What do you think you're making if you had to guess? Like, uh, now what I like to do in my deals, how I think of like how much money am I making, let's say in a year, I don't factor in appreciation at all, actually. Like, I just think cash flow plus what I pay the loan down, that's what I made. This year, the rest is like potential earnings is how I view it. Um, obviously if I sell a building, then that's like different where then you realize that, uh, gain. Um, what do you think on this deal? Like your return would be per year if you were doing cash flow plus paying your loan down. So
1: for this, uh, for the first year we were right around like a 11% uh, return.
0: Nice. Yeah. And then that, and then it will just grow slightly from there as the rents go up. Yeah. Nice. How long, what, uh, what kind of loan term did you get?
1: We had a five year loan with one year extension. Okay. Nice. Um, and you know, we'll see how we want to handle it over time. If we'll want to sell before that or, uh, try to refinance the loan. Um, part of that will depend on if we can continue to grow out the strategy, which is something that I would very much like to do. It's just that um, the spread between that type of spread, like 300 basis point spread between interest rate on cap rate, it's not really there anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. Now you're borrowing at 6% uh, if you're lucky and you know, cap rates moved up, but not, not as much as interest rates moved up. Right. So maybe what's that today? Like a seven something cap. You yeah. Know, it's probably maybe.
1: like a seven something cap and like a 6% loan or something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, I would think so. And then to uh, most of these commercial deals, you know, they're 25 year amortization. So then you're paying more principal than maybe you're running the mill apartment deal down to. So there's less cash flow from that. Right. So no, that's that's interesting. But that's a high return. And then, uh, you know, 11 percent year one with not including appreciation. And then uh, with with no work to do, essentially you know you're very minimal work you got to do some to set up the services for you know snow removal and landscaping and get these things going and then pay the bills get reimbursed but it's almost like a lot of the work is like accounting work on these commercial deals and where there's very little like property management in terms of like tenant uh interaction with like the stuff you'd see in an apartment deal where if the toilet at the vet clinic's overflowing which is your most typical you know property management you know stereotype, let's say the vet clinic is responsible for their own toilets and triple net deal. So they're not calling Mike. Right. So, but then what would, um, so then your average person, let's say they got, you know, they could buy like one of these, like, what would you recommend they would think about, you know, not, not get into where we're rolling up portfolios, but I, you know, maybe I was, I'm living somewhere where I was going to buy a multifamily property for seven, 800 grand. But now I think maybe what about dental clinic, vet clinic, post office, what would, what do you think?
1: Yeah. So are you asking in terms of like, um, other niches that could be interesting or in terms of like what they should be thinking about if they've identified something they think they want to buy?
0: Uh, the, the ladder, like what, what should, like, if you were, let's say you're on bigger pockets or something, you're learning about apartment investing and you hear this, like, to me, I'll, I'll answer this and then you can throw in what you think's the important to know biggest difference. The lease term is so important Uh, like that, which you you just kind of think like, oh, like these tenants, they all just assume they always renew and it doesn't cost anything for them to renew. Um, These renewal negotiations are a bigger deal than you would realize compared to like an apartment deal where they're always going to be asking you for something. At least this is, I've done a lot of multi-tenant commercial deals and they're always singing telling you this sad story about everything's going, poorly with my business and I need to this I need a new uh, HVAC unit on the roof and I need uh, my rent cut and this and that and I want to do a one-year extension and they're just singing you a a sad tune while they're doing just fine with their business and then uh, so like it's renewal and lease timing are so important in this and then in apartments you can just sell at any time like nobody really cares about what your lease term is in an apartment deal in my opinion your lease could be ending in three months any any buyer in an apartment deal is going to assume well whatever i'll just re-rent it if these people don't renew whereas with these vet clinics any commercial deal is not like that
1: yeah they're going to look at the weighted average lease term either of your portfolio or if it's just your single property the lease term matters tremendously because it's just like what you said that's where they the asks come in as you start thinking about the renewal and then there's the renewal probability of them potentially leaving. And if they do, what would it cost for you to get a new tenant in there? And so it's a combination of like, uh, you know, you see this sometimes with brokers where they'll, they'll have a, a deal out there. Maybe it's a dental office where it's like, yes, this dentist only has two years remaining on the lease, but they've been there for 30 years. So they're definitely going to stay. And then they, they want the 30 year premium that you're not getting in your property. You have a two year lease term, but they want you to accept the fact that they're probably not going to leave because they've been there for 30 years, which which you can't really look at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even and it impacts everything where let's say on the deal you bought, you said it was a 13 year term and then you did a five year loan. So if you want to sell it at the end of year five, you're safe. You got eight more years of term. But let's say you renew your loan again for five years, you and you want to sell right at the end of that. And now uh, maybe let's say with the 13 years, you're rounding a little and it's really, you know, 12.8 years. Let's just pretend to make the example work. And now you sell when your loan's wrapping up and you're you got this uh, vet clinic deal with 2.8 years, a lease term. Everybody looking at that's like, wow, in a year, you're going to be talking about a renewal. And every lender I talk to, I ask them for a three or five year fixed and uh and in commercial deals like these the 30-year fix not common so like so that's not uh offered from these banks and then they go this is hard to finance right Uh, i'm worried about the renewal so these deals aren't always sellable like like an apartment deal like today you get the same price always in an apartment deal. Seemingly, Mm -hmm. um, related to the term, you could have a really low rent or something else could be going on and you don't get peak pricing.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what I would say is, you know, as an individual investor, it doesn't make unless you're getting paid handsomely for the probability that there's a tenant that's going to leave. Um, you know, it makes more sense to have a, uh, to, to have a longer lease term unless you're thinking about purchasing a bunch of properties at once where, um, you start thinking about it more as a portfolio and you're like, well, you know, for the properties that I have, have like a 15 year lease term. So I can take the risk on this one guy who has a two year lease term, you know, especially if you're working with the same lender or you're looking at it as like a more portfolio acquisition where it's like, even if I have to leave this space vacant for a year or two, I still cash flow enough where it's worth it for me to take the risk. And that's where it's like the mindset changes from the individual asset to more of a portfolio decision, um, which is ultimately where, you know, I think it makes sense to go with these types of niche investments where it's like, you have one, you have two, you start having 10, 20, 30, like you can go up or down the risk spect- spectrum in a way that somebody else maybe, it's not as beneficial for them to do that because it's just one component of your weighted average lease term and you know the cap rate of your entire portfolio
0: yeah it makes sense where then that's this speaks to building a portfolio and building this out and yeah one of the investors partners i have in some of my deals he um he owns and owned an industrial deal on his own was concerned that um the tenant was going to blow out of there so he sold it and on that individual deal he like Timed it all perfectly. Like, got a new lease, uh, let it go for a couple of years, and then sold. He thought they were gonna leave, um, in or go out of business. But when this company that bought it was selling their, they were doing a industrial building like roll up to sell as a portfolio. When I saw the portfolio for sale, this deal was like 0.8 percent of like the rent roll of the you know weighted, uh, you know the 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 total let's say NOI for the portfolio, and so to them, it was the same thing. Like, yeah, this tenant might go. It's not even 1% of the income. Like it's a good buy. we think. Right. So, right. um, makes sense. Um, wanted to ask you too, what do you think about coworking? Like, that's like a niche. I see people opening up like one-off, like we work locations.
1: Yeah. I, I never really understood the coworking concept. Um, just because, uh, they, you know, if, if, they're a tenant in a building. They have to pay a fixed rent, but they have a variable like cash flow stream um, coming from uh, like the different tenants that are renting in the co-working space. So it seems like when when that business, when people stop using co-working, or it becomes less desirable, even for a short period of time, like it makes it very difficult to run the business. So. I, I always struggled a little bit with, with the idea of coworking and how it made sense. And I mean, like, I know some businesses have like purchased their own office buildings, uh, and then like, depending on the capital stack there, they can take that kind of risk. But I, uh, I think that remote work probably did a disservice to the coworking industry because I, I think that a lot of, a lot of corporate users were using co-working space is an opportunity for them to potentially, um, have like flex office space. But with people's comfort in working from home, um, I feel like it narrows your audience of people that wanted co-working space versus where it was like three or four years ago.
0: So then that's a niche you went, you wouldn't recommend people start opening up their own i'm
1: I'm not a big fan of coworking, but um I mean I'm sure that there's people that have done very well in this space and they understand it much better than me um I never really understood it as a business uh I always kind of struggled with it
0: yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the whole uh savings and loan crisis where these were where they got all upside down where they had all these long term loans out and all these like shorter term you know ways they were had deposits and were paying out interest, and then it all got pulled out and same thing you're signing a 15 year lease or buying a building um and just rent it to people by the day or by the month um things can change really fast
1: right right
0: and, and office is just uh you could almost say the same thing about some of these like you could almost say what i said about hotels or apartments or self-storage maybe but office is just pete- perpetually like a tenants market meaning like the market is like 80 percent occupied or whatever it is um And it's just always the, the balance of power is always in like the tenant's hand. So you never, it's not like some of these other ones where you have like such strong occupancy and rent growth where, um, being, having shorter term leases can almost like work in your favor. Like if you have like a hot hotel or something, you'd be happy. You didn't sign like year long leases. Like you're going to be able to charge more every day, every day as you get, uh, into either peak seasons or you get more popular. Right. Yeah.
1: For me, when I, when I think of niche investing, like where it gets really interesting is smaller, smaller asset sizes where, um, you aren't necessarily competing with institutional investors cause it's not on their radar. Like, uh, uh, it's easy for an institutional investor to purchase like a large industrial building, even though, even if they're not an industrial and like understand it and acquire it and you have to compete um it's less easy for those people to be like why would i buy it even if they're in the triple net space why would i buy a vet clinic um it would make more sense to be like well there's a hundred vet clinics at like a million dollars that you could buy from this one person and so you know you you the theory is you get paid for the work of aggregating up uh the the industry and so it's like um you've seen this a little bit in the storage space there have been some really interesting acquisitions where um, when you think of like traditional self-storage, you have a facility that's like 40,000 square feet or larger or, and, um, you know, you're amongst hundreds of tenants and you know, they, their their attachment to the area is that they're within a certain radius. What, um, we've been seeing in storage is that some, some, uh, people are trying to get smaller. Uh, some institutional investors are trying to get smaller instead of trying to grow into larger footprints, smaller ones. So, um, like there have been some companies out there that have been looking at like 50 unit apartments and saying, Hey, there's this dead space in the basement where there used to be an office wherever. What if we built storage for the users of this building specifically? And, uh, they go to the landlord and they say, Hey, we'll revenue share with you. So we'll put storage into your property or into your basement. We'll revenue share. There's no lease. And, uh, they grow the business that way where it's like, they'll have 20 storage units for 50 apartment units Hmm. and that's it. And, uh, people have been scaling up those types of businesses. So there's niches within, um, like these secondary, uh, real estate asset classes that are really interesting where it's like, it doesn't really make sense for a major REIT to do that once. But if you have a thousand of those types of arrangements, maybe it does. Right. And so it's like scaling up these businesses that, uh, you see the value in, um, on a micro scale and then building it up into a portfolio, I think is like the most interesting way to niche invest.
0: But then for those who don't know, like what's the benefit to building the portfolio, like where do you see it?
1: Yeah. So for me, the benefit is in like the operational efficiencies. So here's a good example, like, uh, for the veterinary clinic or this, or actually let's stick with the self-storage example in the basement where it's like, you have to monitor who's um, who's renting in the space. You have to go through the accounting. You have to make sure that like the LLC the LLC is in order and good standing. And it's like all of the operating things that don't take a lot of time, you know, is easy for someone like me or you to do on the side if we have one building. But if you had like a thousand of them, then all of a sudden like those those concepts become somebody's job. There's like, a, there's an efficiency to scaling and to sizing it up where it's like, instead of having like Mike or Drew or anybody else who's, uh, considering like a niche investment, have this be like something that they do on the side, like they can create a proper business out of it. And, um, normally you can get a cap rate premium when you ultimately decide to sell because of the work that went into it. So, let's say, you know, you were, ag- you were aggregating up the, the post offices theoretically at like a six and a half, maybe seven cap. You know, if you started scaling them up into a, a meaningful level, like you would expect some kind of premium for doing that 50 basis points, 100 basis points beyond the cap rate. Um, and, and that spread between an individual asset and a, an a institutional premium if you acquire to a big enough scale is large enough where it's worth the work.
0: And I already know the answer but I'm trying to drive it home like but what's the what is that cap rate spread? What does that like mean more, like more practically like in terms of dollars or what's what's happening?
1: In terms of like uh, like how much of a spread do people typically get?
0: Yeah, or I'll I'll just try to say what you're saying like maybe a little differently then yeah. where like in some of these product types and I feel like in apartments this doesn't really happen where the cap rates are not that different across the deal sizes where sure like your trophy institutional amazing apartment building will go at a lower cap rate than one that's maybe like a a smaller one but then you kind of this weird dynamic where on the lower end size wise like the sizes you're talking about the one two million dollar deals you have individuals that are just paying crazy numbers sometimes for them where they're just investing their own money. They might be self managing it. So they're not even underwriting full expenses. And so I personally haven't seen anybody buy like a bunch of two and $3 million buildings, let's say for apartments and then sell them as a group and get any kind of premium when they could have just sold them off one by one to these, let's call them like beginning investors that are over, that are paying big numbers uh, on the mom and pop side where um, on these, like, uh, let's say on a in the industrial world, I saw a great example where there is a guy in Minnesota who sold this whole portfolio to, to individuals that sold. One was someone who sold a $200 million one and then a $500 million industrial portfolio to Blackstone. And on one off basis, those things were, like you are saying, where maybe you sold them off one by one, uh, you know, let's make up the cap rates here, would have sold for seven caps. But blackstone's looking at 100 plus million dollar deals only let's say and they because they they have billions of dollars to put out and they they can't i mean they only put in 20 30 million at a time how do you invest billions that these their funds have um and all the deals they look at they're more like four and five caps so then they see this portfolio come through and they're like oh five and a half cap you know or whatever it was i don't know the numbers on those but I'm trying to just explain where all of a sudden you go from maybe one off that portfolio that guy sold to Blackstone would be worth 150 million bucks. But to Blackstone, they thought it's worth, to them at 200 million, it looked like a juicy deal. And then they're putting that in this, uh, in their industrial platform that has like last time I checked, like 10 billion plus of industrial assets, which they call logistics. Um, and now it's not worth 200 million to the next buyer when they sell it to the Singapore pension fund or whatever they did last time, like it's gonna be, um, so that's, I'm trying to just drive home, like why would there be a premium? Cause to the average person listening, it's like, well, so what you bought like 10, I don't get why these are worth more. But it's cause the, if you can get it to a size where that bigger buyer is looking, that only that's used to paying lower cap rates, which means a higher multiple for what it makes, then to them this looks like an enticing deal and they're only looking at stuff that a lot of times these bigger deals, um, the institutional investors, they have a lower cost of capital on the equity side and then also on the debt side. Um, I think that's
1: right. And then the, the other component to that though, is it it evolves from being, um, something that you can do on the side to something that generates enough cash flow where it's a proper business. And there ends up being like, an enterprise value to the portfolio that you created, right? Like, there's you've created a portfolio of why, which is big enough where somebody else can take that why and like grow it out into something much bigger. And they have enough cash flow today where they can hire staff that could support that business. Where it's like, it's not like I don't think that these like larger institutional investors are just like. Oh wow, we pay really aggressive uh, pricing for everything. This seems relatively cheap to that, which 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 I think is true that uh, like might initially get them interested, but it's like there's enough cash there where they can they can pay people to grow out that business. And I think that's that's part of the portfolio premium. If somebody else looks at you, the small guy who is like, I aggregated this big thing, and they're like, Yeah, yeah, that's great, we'll take it. And they're like, this thing is really small in their perspective. Now we're going to make it really, really big, like right. properly, like yeah. institutional the way it should be. And so they see value in you, like in the, in you creating, what is a beginning <clears throat> to them, to a yeah. bigger business, as opposed to you being like, this is way more than I can handle.
0: Yeah, right. no, that makes sense. And I do think there's also a piece where like the people buying at, uh, you know, vet clinics at, uh, you know, seven, eight caps today, borrowing from banks at six and a half, like that deal makes a certain return. But if you were to sell a hundred of the, you know, 200 of those to Blackstone, they're not going to go borrow at six and a half. Like they're, they have a totally different arrangement. So then then to them, they don't think this is like, we're not, they don't think they're overpaying. They're going, wow, we haven't seen a a $200 million deal with such a high cap rate. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, and then to them, all those benefits you're talking about when you get the portfolio built up are there for them. They're going. This is really a great rent roll. It's 200 different businesses operating independently. Uh, it's like a you know at that point it's basically like an apartment building from like a rent roll standpoint. There's 200 different families in the building, let's say, and they're all making money independently. And it's not like and one things is tied to it. So, um, makes sense. What else? What else should we hit on here?
1: I don't know. I think some of the things to think about, too, is like uh, when you're aggregating up smaller assets. And uh, I'm sure there's like a lot of podcasts that go into like due diligence and what you should do. You know, every every couple hundred dollars matters when you're buying like an eight hundred thousand dollar asset or smaller or even bigger, uh, a little bigger than that, um, where it's like it's hard, it's hard to justify like an expensive attorney. It's hard to justify like all the different types of third party reports. So I think something that's really important that people need to think about is like what reports are important to them. And so for me, it's always like a environmental report, property condition report, and then like, depending on the asset, like you need a title report. But then it's like where it gets a little more murky is like, what kind of survey do you get? How much should you be spending on legal? Like that ends up really eating into your yield. And it's like, you have to be very careful with that. So, you know, everybody is different in their approach. But for me, like environmental and property condition report are the most important things that that you get when you're going through an arm arms like transaction and understanding the lease that you're signing on to because I think what's very typical is uh, it's like, what well, we had the conversation at the beginning of this. Well, that's absolute triple net, Mike. That's not triple net. I mean, um, brokers kind of say the same kind of stuff where those definitions are fluid. You really need to make sure what your landlord responsibilities are. If you're trying to dis- uh, purchase like a single tenant property and rolling that up uh, because what, a broker may tell you is your responsibility and what your actual responsibility is when you look at the lease are, are different. So what I would say is read all the leases carefully so that you can understand them, ask questions if you don't, um, and, uh, and be careful in your due diligence spending. Yeah.
0: It makes sense where, I mean, like buying one of these properties, there's not a realtor form contract to use. So then you, usually have a custom attorney drafted contract, which, I mean, depends how complicated the deal is. And I mean, I've probably depending on how complicated some of the deals I bought, I've spent probably between 2000 and 20,000 on a purchase contract before, depending. And obviously if you're buying the, the $20,000 contract was on, you know, a 30 plus million dollar building, wasn't on, um, uh, wasn't on a $800,000 billion. building. That wouldn't make any sense. Um, But so point being, so then that's, if that's something you can get a contract, you can reuse. Um, there's, another know, something you've talked to me about or ways you can save or yeah, figure out what's important to you. Uh, and then not overspend. Makes sense. Yeah,
1: The other component too is like if you have, if you have a lender, it's important for you to understand what's important to them. Uh, what kind of, what kind of contracts are they going to be using? Are they going to be using a form contract or are they going to be using some kind of custom contract, uh, or custom like loan documents. And so uh, like it's really interesting, like um, sometimes diligence for these smaller properties is driven by what the lender needs. My lender needs to have this kind of environmental report or he won't give me or she won't give me the money. Like that's, that's not unusual for assets of this size where it's like you have to recognize what's important to you, but then it's very important to understand like what diligence requirements your lender has, if any, sometimes they don't have any depending on like uh if it's a recourse or non-recourse component, where it's just like, they expect you to be responsible and figure that out. And so um just having an understanding of like your entire, entire capital stack, what matters to you, what matters to the lender what will matter to show to like anyone who's investing with you that you, the work that you've done is like an important thing on the front end to think about.
0: Yeah. And I think let's, uh, I don't think we've actually touched on maybe what could be the most important part of like niche investing. Like what's the, in my opinion, the number one benefit we haven't talked about. Thinking about that. Um, the most, the, to, in my opinion, uh, cause I'm in what's the most crowded space, I'd say, uh, maybe industrial is more crowded, but I invest in multifamily and so do a lot of other people, whereas so any deal that comes out. You know, if it's brokered, there's a lot of activity. Uh, it's getting multiple offers and things generally aren't just going for like wild mispricings. Whereas on some of these smaller one off deals, I mean, you might be buying a vet clinic just off the veterinarian. Doesn't really True. know, not in the real estate space, they're not giving it away for free, but they're not also, um, you know, reading uh, whatever we'd be reading on where valuations are. Um, And you're dealing with a totally different seller potentially and then also competing buyers.
1: That's that's a spot on comment. In fact, I've done deals before because I sent out a postcard to a seller directly. And when you talk about transaction costs, uh, the same the same is true for a seller. Um, When you are working with brokers on the smaller deal size, a broker doesn't want to work on the property unless they can get a big commission in terms of a percentage of sale. So they might be asking for like a 6% commission from the seller The sellers looking at that. And then they're saying, oh man, I just got this postcard from Mike. Maybe I'll call him and save on this commission. And like that, you know, it seems, it seems silly, but it's not because uh, like every dollar matters when you're on the smaller side like that. And so it's like, uh, uh, there's a, there's a preference to work directly. Um,
0: yeah. And then you hit them with, I got a form contract, so you can start with that You'll right, save right. legal. Yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Right. Right. And so it's like, um, there, it's a different attitude. <clears throat> it's a different investment group that's there, especially if you're interacting with somebody who maybe hasn't done a commercial real estate deal, but they have this building that they've owned for 30 years. And so there's a little bit of handholding that might have to go into that maybe they're very sophisticated but they also don't want to spend too much money and so it's like yeah your your competitive pool is smaller from the purchasing side which is an extremely attractive quality
0: i mean to me the m- number one benefits on niche investing are top ones that always come to mind like rolling up one of these kind of portfolios it's you know it's way less competitive on the buy you're buying smaller properties uh typically competing with way way less people like think about how many people When you talk to the average person, if they invest in real estate, odds are they're not buying marinas or vet clinics or what have you, like they're buying apartments. So you're not in as crowded of a trade, should return and getting higher returns just being less competitive. And then you have um, like these, the income is so like, it's not correlated with the economy as much. Like you have these long-term contracts with a lot of these. Things are more necessity driven I mean we're talking about a lot of like medical and postal and whatnot I mean obviously like the marinas not if in that example or co-working, which is why that's another you know mm-hmm. I can see why mm-hmm. that wasn't your favorite where that's a easy cut if you're a business like we had this month to month extra office space let's dump that but a lot of it's not really correlated to the overall economy, which is that's an important part of real estate investing in my opinion where you've invested in your stocks, your mutual funds, your bonds, what have you. Uh, and in general, real estate's not correlated with that stuff. Uh, and then this would be even less correlated. Like what? what is the income from a vet clinic? I mean, that's like a solid, um, you know, need-based business that basically seemed to never close. Agreed. So those are my top two before you even get to like, maybe if you buy a hundred of them, you could sell them at a big premium. I and mean, most people never get to that point, you know? So that's like a big, um, two big pluses, especially the not being crowded think about that all the time when there's, you know, an apartment deal I like, and then it gets 20 offers and then I don't don't like it anymore. Right, I'm like, of course. okay, or, or if like, you want it,
1: then how do you feel about it?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. 80% of the deals I bought still have been off market, you know, usually through a broker, you know, not like direct, like the postcard thing. Um, but I do think that like you want to not be in like a crowded trade and then you see a really nice apartment deal come out and then it gets 20 offers and you're like, oh, okay. Right. Talk to you later so sweet well yeah let's leave it there awesome thanks for being on thank you it was a pleasure cool anyway how do people get in touch with you
1: um people can always uh find me on linkedin or um, they can send me an email at uh m-m-a-z-u-r at elmdalepartners.com
0: perfect awesome great job mike thank thanks you for being on thanks Drew. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred
0: by applying any of the information offered.